Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now what do I have for you today? Today I've got, uh, well we're going to be talking about the Biden administration's new policy towards sub-Saharan Africa, the strange absence of the Kherson offensive in Ukraine, and the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Putin and Kim Jong-un exchanging letters for Korea's Liberation Day with Putin saying that closer ties would be in the interest of both Russia and North Korea. So Russia continuing the trend of increasing its relationships around the world and deepening its relationships around the world, almost almost sort of in spite, like deliberate, uh, like, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a, a deliberate insult to the sanctions that were levied on them, you know. The sanctions, if you remember, five years ago, back in February of 2022, uh, those sanctions were supposed to cut Russia off from the world. But Russia continues to demonstrate an increasing connection with more places around the world that haven't been cut off. And so I guess this is sort of spiting the sanctions. Or maybe it's just them, maybe it's just Russia increasing relations just as a matter of fact, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the sanctions, but that's certainly what it looks like uh, in the immediately aftermath of people trying to cut you off from the world, and you just go on about your business as though nothing happened. So, there's that. I thought it was an interesting story. You have Iraq's Supreme Judicial Council ruling that it does not have the power to dissolve the Iraqi parliament. And this is a ruling in a deliberation that came in response to an influential cleric in the country, uh, Muqtada al-Sadir, uh, Muqtada al-Sadir, uh, who demanded that the court do so, and he demanded that the courts dissolve the parliament. And he basically gave the ultimatum to do it within a week. And the courts have come back, we don't have the power, so... Iraq is in a is in quite the political crisis right now. Uh, apparently, it's been this way for a couple of months now, but it's now coming to my attention with this little incident here. So, Iraq is in a strange place, but then again, who isn't right now? Well, I guess the Russians aren't, and I guess the the Chinese aren't. Although, interestingly enough, about China, I've been hearing a whole lot of uh, hubbub, as it will about the Chinese economy and how it's on the verge of collapsing and how we, they may only have a, a month left and maybe you've seen some of those uh, clickbait thumbnails where it has the the stocks, the stock line and then they, there's just an arrow that goes straight down and then you have Xi Jinping's face on it, you know, or maybe that's just the YouTube algorithm feeding me a whole bunch of nonsense, but I've been hearing a whole lot of hubbub about that, so is it real? I guess we'll find out. I am inclined not to believe so. Uh, mainly because a, a lot, and I do mean a lot, of people's analyses on China, particularly people that aren't, you know, either in China or proximate to China, like in on the Asian continent or on Africa or in the Middle East, like people in Europe and North America, have really strange ideas about China, the strength and weaknesses of China's system and their system of governance, and tend to, I believe, dangerously underestimate the resilience of Chinese institutions. Now, maybe I'm wrong, um, but again, we'll, we'll, we'll find out real soon whether I'm right to be skeptical about these claims, uh, well, we'll see if my skepticism was founded, 
or if my skepticism this time around proves to be unfounded because China maybe is on the verge of collapse. Now, I don't believe they are. I, I don't. They're, they're a really, 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 really big manufacturing power. So I doubt that a financial crisis is going to destroy their country, you know, once you have a skyscraper, once you have a road and a high-speed rail, those don't just disappear overnight. So while China might be facing a recession driven by their own debt and deficit spending, well, a whole lot of other countries are too. If China's economy goes, the rest of us are going to go down with it because everyone's in debt. So relatively speaking, again, China's not just going to disappear. But that, that's just a, a interesting thing that's popped up recently. Uh, hype about the collapse of the Chinese economy. I don't think it's going to go, but we'll find out. We really will. Uh, in other news, Israel has launched airstrikes in Tartus province, which is in western Syria. And the Syrians have obviously condemned this attack as yet another violation of their sovereignty. And I've spoken... Uh, a lot in recent episodes about just how belligerent the Israelis are. And in even further back, a couple of months back, I've spoken on how I think that their current aggression towards every single one of their neighbors is going to get them killed. It's going to lead them to a really bad place. But here, to those who don't believe me, and you don't have to believe me, you could just look. They they flew over Lebanon. To, you have to fly over Lebanon to get to this part of Syria, which is exactly what the Israelis did. They violated the airspace of their neighbors so they could violate the airspace of yet another neighbor and then bomb it and then fly back over the same airspace that you violated. Uh, and I, I continuously bring it up. Why are we so concerned about the Iranians getting nukes? When Israel, a nuclear-armed state, is the most belligerent country in the region, aside from ourselves, the United States, where's the Israel nuclear deal? Why are we not pressuring arms control over them? And it's not even—it's not like a, a tit for tat. Or, oh, I stand with the Iranians, or, or even that I think we should get involved to do anything with the Palestinians. I think we should leave the whole damn region alone. But if we're going to talk this talk about danger and nuclear proliferation and peace in the region, you gotta address who the disruptor of that peace is, and it's Israel. So yet again, we have Israel violating the sovereignty of its neighbors, uh, with getting two birds with one stone this time. They flew over Lebanon to get to Syria, and then probably flew back over Lebanon to get back home, where they then proceeded to, <laughs> to oppress the Palestinians. I shouldn't be laughing, but you know, uh, just listening to a lot of the uh, hypocrisy, so to speak, regarding the players in the Middle East and the refusal of many to acknowledge Israel's role in that and refusal of uh, others to re acknowledge the role of the Palestinians in that. It is very entertaining to watch from over here, thousands of miles away. I'll, I'll just say that much and leave it, leave it be. Uh, we, we have in Africa... 42 Mali troops killed and 22 more wounded in a militant attack near Tesset Town, which is a town in the southeastern part of Mali. We have Hungary re receiving more gas from Russia than their contract with Russia's Gazprom actually required Russia get. So, and that's interesting to me because Russia's been very open in the um, basically telling the Europeans and the Germans in specific, we will not be supplying Europe w with gas the way we used to. Like the pre what the pre sanctions level of gas the Russians used to supply to the Europeans, they made clear that that's not coming back. They're already reallocating that towards other pipeline projects, towards other places around the world. Uh, Nord Stream two, for example. The gas that would have run through that pipeline, uh, and this is the pipeline that wasn't that that was finished, and then was not used because the war broke out and the Germans sanctioned Russia. Nord Stream Two 
Russia has said that about 40% of the gas that would have gone through that pipeline has already been reallocated. And then you had the Nord Stream 1 pipeline with turbine issues. It came down to about 40%. And then you had yet another turbine issue, which has brought it down to 20%. And even if the, the Canadians and the Germans work this out and get the turbine that's needed for the repairs on Nord Stream 1, I have a feeling that the Russians will find that yet another turbine needs repairs and then you'll have 10 or 5 or 0 percent of the gas flowing through that pipeline and what can you say to that they're pretty obviously just throttling and cutting back on the gas they're sending to europe which makes it interesting that they're instead of cutting back they're sending more than they are contractually obligated to give to Hungary. So the, I found that pretty interesting. Uh, and what could be the reason behind this? Because Russia's Russia likes uh, their money, uh, especially when it comes to their gas. I mean, they literally did gas for rubles, which resurrected and super duper overcharged their currency. So now their currency is one of the strongest in the world. So now that they're giving gas... Hungary more than the Hungarians really paid for it raises the interesting it raises an interesting question why because either they're doing this out of favoritism uh, they're doing this out of ignorance to, to how much gas that they've given maybe the Hungarians negotiated a secret deal with the Russians and this is just the actual terms of that agreement, but it hasn't been publicized, so no one actually knows that they are getting the amount that they paid for. They're just getting a better rate, you see. Instead of, say, whatever the normal amount per cubic meter of gas is, maybe they're getting a bonus. For the same pay, they're getting a bonus amount of gas for that same payment. Maybe this was a secret agreement. And we're all just playing, we're all playing it off as though they're getting more than they needed. Uh, but actually, maybe it's, again, just a secret agreement. Because, look at Europe. How would any of them respond if the Hungarians made it public that they had a side deal with the Russians? Uh, not that Hungary cares too much about that, but it would be bad optics probably even among some Hungarians. But if it's a secret deal, well, now the optics get shifted away from Hungary and onto Russia. Well, hold on now. Why are you giving all this gas to Hungary? So it could be any one of those things. Maybe it's, again, either negligence on the part of the Russians, favoritism on the part of the Russians towards Hungary, a secret deal, or, we can speculate even further here, perhaps this is a deliberate attempt to divide the EU through jealousy. I've been talking extensively about the Europeans' lack of gas and what that's going to do to them, to the point where I've even openly stated that they need to be looking at nuclear and coal power, because they have lots of coal, and they have the expertise for nuclear. This is their best option if they want energy secure and energy independence. Instead of relying on gas, which comes from literally any country outside of Europe at this point. But if they want energy security, they need to be looking at coal. They need to be looking at nuclear. That's going to take time. They don't have the infrastructure for that yet. But they used to. They know how. They know what they need to do. And if they take the actions, they can't. France doesn't have far to go. They already get 70% of their electricity from nuclear power. The 30% is going to be a bitch to make up for, but they can make up for it. Everyone in Europe has coal. And I have a feeling that a lot of them are going to, a lot of them are going to put this whole environment thing down to the wayside and say, we cannot afford politically to have millions freezing during the winter. And maybe that's this winter. Maybe after the ramifications of people freezing this winter, people come to the conclusion, we can allow that to happen again. We cannot allow that to happen again. We need coal.
we need coal. That's if they're realistic, you know. I mean, there are pipelines being built for natural gas, but if you're looking purely at what the Europeans can do themselves, it's nuclear and coal. And it's nuclear and coal. But maybe you can have a, a higher balance of nuclear than coal to balance out the emissions if you so please. But those are realistically Europe's best options. So it'll be interesting to see who takes those options. Because it doesn't seem like any of them are intent on doing that. But Europe is in an energy crunch because they're dependent on gas. They don't produce gas. They get it from Russia. Or at least most of them do. Spain and Portugal don't really. And they get like 10 or 15%. And France is, again, 70% of its electricity from nuclear. But Russia's not supplying gas like they used to. And they're not going to. <laughs> They've made it clear they're not going to. So them giving all this gas to Hungary could be a deliberate attempt to divide the Europeans on lines of energy. Hey, look at the Hungarians. They're still getting gas. You want to be like them? Well, maybe you should back off of Russia. Maybe you should stop criticizing Russia. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you leave the EU, we might give you some gas too. How about that? <laughs> How about you leave NATO, you know? Or... How about, how about, how about you do what we say, and then we will decide if we're going to give you this gas. That, that, that could be what it is. That could be what it is. Because the Russians don't take this approach with any other country, but the Europeans make themselves hostile. So, the Russians have plenty of reason to be hostile back at them, and it wouldn't be a surprise from that point. But that's just speculation. But I just want to put that on the table. just want to put it on the table. Uh, in other news, though, we have Ukraine, uh, specifically their President Zelensky, giving out his war aims and what he hopes to accomplish in this war, or at the very least, one of his victory conditions. And he says that he wants to take back Crimea. Quote, the Russian war against Ukraine and all of free Europe began with Crimea and must end with Crimea, end quote. So I'm not sure what he is uh, smoking, but I do not see the Ukrainians getting Crimea back ever. I mean, people, y you got to understand, uh, you gotta, gotta understand, the Ukrainians could not win the 1v1 against rebels in the Donbass in 2014. They couldn't win the 1v1 against either of those rebel republics, the Lugansk or the Donetsk People's Republic. So, if the best you had couldn't handle them, and you are now losing territory consistently, Every day, the Russians advance, feet by feet and inch by inch, or I guess in their case, meter by meter and centimeter by centimeter, but we're civilized in this country, so we use <laughs> inches and feet, but the Ukrainians are losing. They're losing ground, which is, you, you can't, uh, there's no way to square that circle if you're losing ground and then you say you're winning. But you never get that ground back. It, it, there's no way to sort of hide that. And they've been losing this entire time. They've lost territory around Crimea. So much so that they would have to cross the Dnieper River again. Like The Russians have a, a foothold on the other side of the river down south. So they'd have to cross the Dnieper River, then push... Uh, almost a hundred miles to get to Crimea. And then what? How are you going to... Because Crimea is a peninsula and the land connection to it is incredibly thin. Sure, you can blow up, blow up the bridge connecting Crimea to the parts of southern Russia, but what you've done there is you've made Crimea an aircraft carrier now. The Russians have an air force and Ukraine does not. So what then? You 
you, you cucked yourself. You've cucked yourself. You can't even get this, this effectively an island now if you do that. I don't see the Ukrainians getting Crimea back. Uh, I mean, they, they couldn't get the Donbass back. Everywhere the Russians decide to push, they are able to take land. Everywhere the Ukrainians are pushed, they have to fall back. But wherever the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians are never able to push the Russians out. The Russians chose to leave the north, the parts close to Kiev. Uh, the, they, they, the Ukrainians call it a counteroffensive. But when you see the minimal Russian losses here, they, and you put it into pers perspective, that Russia walked up to your capital, sat on it, and then walked back to their own border, and then walked back into your country, and barely took any casualties, while you're getting ground down with soul-crushing levels of artillery fire, that's not winning the war. That's not winning. I have no idea how they plan on getting Crimea, but they do, apparently. Uh, maybe maybe this is what their, their counteroffensive aims to do. But we will talk more about that counteroffensive later, and the oddities surrounding it. But we'll, we'll talk about Ukraine later. In the other side of the world, more U.S. congressmen visit Taiwan for no reason, and they'll be meeting with the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, further increasing the tensions between America and China for no good reason, I might add. Uh, but hey, so long as it's standing up to China, uh, again, I'll bring up this point again. This is what Cold War 2.0 is going to look like, folks. So, either you're on board or you're with me and you're not. But this is what it's going to look like. A whole bunch of nonsense for nonsensical reasons that we aren't allowed to stop doing. Because we would lose face to, our, the, to the enemy, which is China right now. So, ooh, let's go Cold War 2.0. Woo! Stupid. <laughs> but that's that. And Sweden has made its first extradition to Turkey since being admitted into NATO. And if you remember, Turkey basically... <laughs> they, Turkey accepted a bribe to allow them in, which was... The, 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 goodness. Turkey extorted them to allow them in. They had to basically cede ground to Turkey in that they would cooperate with Turkey in what Turkey deemed to be Turkish national interest, specifically regarding Kurds and Kurdish groups, which the Swedes and the Finns supported. They had to renounce that support. And they promised to extradite people to Turkey that Turkey deemed to be terrorists. So basically they surrendered a piece of their own sovereignty to Turkey just to be a part of NATO, which is astounding to say out loud, even at this point. But that's what happened. And so now we're getting the first extradition. And there was a lot of talk about how it couldn't be done. It, it would violate their own laws. It would violate the EU laws. And now they're doing it. And it's insane. I guess the Ottomans are back in business. All they need now is the spice trade. Or probably better off with oil. But we'll see. And lastly, uh, lastly, we have India signing trade agreements with the UAE. And they're on track for another trade deal with the UK. And that is all we got for the rapid fire. And we'll come back for the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alright, it's time for the meat of this episode, and we'll start by talking about America outlining its new Africa strategy. Oh, brother, just let me go home. But hey, 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 we're, last week a paper was published covering how America should rethink and rework its approach to African nations. And this is specifically towards sub-Saharan African nations, so that's uh, essentially the string of countries running from Guinea on Africa's west coast all the way through to South Sudan. So that string of countries down there just beneath the Sahara Desert. Uh, interestingly enough, Sahara means desert, so it's kind of like saying desert, desert. But those countries right there, that string of countries from Guinea to South Sudan, 
that's generally the area we're looking at here and a little bit below down to Congo so uh, we're looking at a new strategy because we have to do something about China uh, again this is what your Cold War 2.0 is gonna look like uh, but the Biden administration has taken this this paper and is now implementing uh, or at least in the process of translating it into actual policy the US is going to work with sub-Saharan African nations on issues of climate change, pandemic recovery, and food security. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. will maintain a unilateral uh, response towards militancy and terrorism. So we have zero drawdown of our troops. Uh, but hey, we have more cooperation on climate change. Um, uh, but it aims, the aims of this is to push for greater openness and democracy in the region. The Biden administration hopes to have a U.S.-African summit uh, by the end of this year. Uh, the goal is December, but I'd say the end of the year. Just Maybe it could happen a little earlier, a little later. But yeah, that's what they're aiming to do right now with Africa. And most importantly, again, America's troops are going to remain in the region in their current capacity. So no drawing down of troops uh, and hopefully no increasing of troops. But, um, uh, gag me with a spoon. But uh, let's just look at this policy here. But uh, I'll save you the, the isolationist rants that you all know that I have deep in my soul about this. But let's just look at this for what it is for a moment. We're going to be in Africa, specifically Sub-Saharan Africa, to promote climate change, pandemic recovery, and, well, to deal with climate change, pandemic recovery, and food insecurity. While we're in the middle of a recession. And we're going to push for openness and democracy in the region. So... There's a good number of issues that I imagine we're going to run into right off the bat here. Uh, whether you agree with this or disagree with this like I do, there's an immediate wall of issues that we're going to run into just based off of the aims we've laid out here. And I guess we'll start in reverse order with the democracy and openness in the region. Countries don't like being forced to change specifically with regards to their governance systems. No one likes being told, hey, you need to change your government system because we say so. Well, who are you? I mean, you don't live here. We And we don't. So right off the bat, if a country isn't as democratic as the, this administration would like it to be, and they say, hey, we're, we're trying to give you aid, but you need to be more you you need more democracy. Well, we're gonna run into an we're gonna run into a problem, because countries that don't want to change their systems, and certainly don't want foreigners to change it for them, because that's what we are. We're foreigners to them. They're gonna resist you right off the bat. No one likes it when foreign countries go meddling in their domestic affairs, and there is nothing higher up on the list of sensitive issues with regards to domestic affairs than one's own government. That's the last place you want foreign governments to have influence. That's the absolute last place. So right off the bat, we're going to run into issues with that. Then we have the pandemic recovery and food insecurity. The food insecurity issue we might be able to do something about and might be able to benefit from ourselves. America is a major food-producing nation. We can eat up Ukraine's market share here if we chose to do so. That would require more production at home, though, which high gas prices would hinder and a lack of fertilizer is going to hinder. And the administration paying farmers not to farm for the sake of the climate agenda is going to be a problem here. I mean, because what good is working with them on food insecurity if you, a massive food 
exporting nation, a breadbasket nation, aren't gonna, if you're not gonna sell them the food, there'd be no point in cooperating on that if you're not gonna pitch in. I mean, sure, you can say, hey, that you're just trying to exploit them. Well, they need the food, and there's no guarantee that it's gonna keep coming from Ukraine. The shipments got shut down before. Sure, the ships are sailing now. But what happens if the war goes south again? What happens if the Russians decide, you know what, we're just going to take Odessa and now Ukraine cannot get its wheat and its grain to port because it has no ports anymore. What happens then? Because Russia will take Odessa, no doubt about it. Uh, They will take it. So what happens then? Or these countries get cut off from their food supply again? Or do they transition to Russia? Um, um, and are we going to help facilitate that trans that transition? Like, what's the end goal here if we're not going to replace Ukrainian and some of the Russian foodstuffs with our own? And we can at least benefit from this cooperation deal. Uh, I'm, again, I'm looking at this from an America First perspective, uh, but that's something we could do if we're going to tackle food insecurity. But that would require more production here at home. We'd have to get rid of some of these policies that the Biden administration itself has put into place in America, which has stifled our own production and our productive our productivity. We'd have to get rid of some of those so that we can even try to meet whatever obligations we might run into specifically regarding food insecurity. But then there's pandemic recovery. And... How exactly are we going to help them recover if we ourselves are in a recession? Uh, um, Now, the Biden administration does not like to admit that we are in a recession, but we are. The recession isn't deep yet, but the inflation is high. Prices are high. And no, those are not the same, even though many refer to them as the same thing. They say prices are up, up, and up, and this is inflation. Uh, that's just prices rising. Inflation is the increase in the money supply. And when people, when that definition, the accurate definition of inflation makes its way back into the the popular mind, uh, I have a feeling the Fed will be on the chopping block as well. I can't wait for that to happen. But we have high inflation. We have prices rising through the roof. People are struggling now. Uh, not Not as bad as some people in fucking... The UK, where they're paying thousands just for their energy bill, and oh my god, oh my god, that's 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 a tragedy. It's like, but back to here, we're in a recession. So how exactly we're going to help other countries recover if we ourselves are in a position where we haven't recovered from the pandemic either? How are we going? How are we going to do this? How are you going to square that circle? Not entirely sure. I mean, again, if we were in a superior position where we could do that, then sure, it might make sense as an economic bribe to help them out of their economic troubles. But we're not in that position. We have our own economic troubles. In fact, we haven't even recovered from the pandemic ourselves. So how are we going to use our resources to help other countries recover from the pandemic? And it's, again, not really the pandemic. It's the lockdowns that we're talking about here. Because the pandemic didn't kill the economy. The lockdowns did. Forcing people not to work. But I'll be interested to see how they tackle that issue. And again, this is a problem they're going to run into immediately on the offset. Uh, How are you going to do this when we ourselves are not recovered? And then there's the issue of climate change. I don't think that these African countries are going to be anywhere near as receptive to the climate change agenda and the climate change narrative as many in the current administration would hope. Lots of people who believe in uh, climate change, specifically the climate crisis, because I myself believe in climate change, Just not the climate crisis. But many who believe in the climate crisis believe it is going to have global impact and therefore it's at a top agenda for everybody in the world. 
But when you look at the actions of everybody in the world, you see that that's actually not the case. The Chinese don't don't care. They'll give lip service to it while they expend incredible amounts of fossil fuels and hydrocarbons, burning a whole lot of them and then releasing a whole lot of carbon emissions and a whole lot of pollution and a whole lot of waste to produce the very technologies that we're using to get rid of carbon emissions here at home, like wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicle batteries. And oh, China's doing a lot of the lithium mining and rare earth mining and rare earth processing. Those are pollution heavy processes, the, the mining and the processing and the refining and the the manufacture of the finished goods like the batteries and whatnot and the solar panels those use up a lot of hydrocarbons and therefore produce a lot of carbon dioxide and the whole point of this is to reduce carbon emissions but the very technologies we're using the processes required to get those to end market produce much more emissions uh, to the point where in some instances you'd be you'd just be better off burning coal but china will give lip service to the green agenda all day and night and then immediately do the opposite and then make a profit off of people who actually believe and actually take actions on this green agenda the climate crisis narrative like countries in europe countries in oh i almost said countries in america well, technically true, that Canada and America, that's a plural, countries, plural. But when you look elsewhere, uh, you, you can only find a few places where this attention to the climate crisis is actually paid any mind. Like the Middle East, uh, who's swimming in oil, so they, 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 they're literally just doing this as an experiment. They have lot, plenty of sunlight, so they see good reason to use solar panels they they live in a desert they can get the most bang for their buck here in this desert and even they still use oil and oil power generation at night when the sun is not shining so and beyond that you get what japan south korea maybe taiwan it's not as global as proponents of the green agenda say because we, we, they talk about global but the globe doesn't seem to be all that worried about it and when you look specifically at developing countries like those in sub-saharan africa they use coal power they, they use coal they use natural gas where they can get it they use oil nigeria has oil libya has oil algeria has natural gas these places use hydrocarbons and they are unabashed and unapologetic in using them because they're trying to industrialize and they need cheap energy. Green energy is not cheap. It's not cheap to build, even if you have the perfect conditions for running it long term. If you have lots of wind, if you have lots of sunlight, like in a desert, the build out is just too expensive for all these countries and they say it's just more economic to use coal and then they it's a done deal why would these countries move away from reliable sources of energy like hydrocarbons coal natural gas and oil towards expensive and relatively unreliable sources of energy like solar and wind and yes the sun shines during the day but are you capturing enough energy to power a city block? And if so, for how long? Because you'd need to not just capture enough energy to power it. You'd need to capture so much energy that you could store what you needed to get you through the night. We don't have the storage capacity for that. And we, quite frankly, aren't generating enough power to do that in the first place. To get enough, to get a big enough surplus of energy to store for the night. We don't have the batteries for it. So it's unreliable in that the sun, just as the sun will always rise, it's always going to go down. There will always be nighttime. And 
you never know when the clouds are going to cock block you out of the sun. So it's unreliable in that regard. And it's, again, not dense enough. It's not potent enough to get that job done. You can do it on local scales. Like you can save on your power bill if it's a home. And say you live in the American Southwest or you live in the Sahara itself or in the deserts of the Middle East. But if you're living in the tropics or uh, uh, as some parts of sub-Saharan Africa are, some of them are savanna countries and others go straight to the tropics. Well, that's there's a lot of humidity and cloud cover that gets in the way. So would it be effective? Then you have to consider wind power, and the obvious downfall with that is that the wind doesn't always blow, and when it does blow, it's not always blowing hard enough to get the turbines to move. So these are relatively unreliable technologies when you compare them to the hydrocarbons, coal, oil, natural gas, and then they're more expensive to build. So you're going to pay more to build them, and then you don't you don't have the certainty that they're going to work when you need power because with coal with oil with natural you can burn that whenever you want natural gas is a little bit harder you need a constant supply you can't just pick it up one day and use it like you can with a barrel of oil or uh, a, a train load of coal you can just pick those up and burn them as needed and then if you don't need them, you can just put them down somewhere. You can, uh, natural gas is a little bit harder, but the other two have density. They have stored, easily able to store their energy because it's physical. You can store them. And then you can use them on demand. You can't do the same with the green technologies. So would these countries even go along with the climate change agenda? I don't think they will. They might they might build a, a couple solar panels here and there. They might build a couple wind turbines if we're the ones footing the bill. But if they have to pay, well, they're going to choose not to. They've already chosen not to in most cases because it's just not economic for them. So while this policy is new and does rethink the way we look at Africa, it comes at it from an angle that is almost antithetical to the way that these countries in Africa have decided to operate for themselves. And then you have the added the added thing, which is that it's not even really about America and furthering American interests. It's really just a, a counter to China. It's America trying to find some way to counter China in Africa, and this is what they've settled on. And again... This is what your Cold War 2.0 is going to look like. Us doing weird things in weird places for weird reasons. We have to counter China. Why? Why? Uh, and that's before you get to the multi-billion dollar, uh, well, multi-hundred billion dollar infrastructure plan that, that this administration worked out with a couple other countries to build everywhere except for the United States uh, in literally, and I do mean everywhere, either Latin America, Africa, parts of Central Asia, in the Middle East, parts of South Asia, everywhere except for where Americans would prefer to have that infrastructure money allocated, which is right here, where we need it. So, that's, so you have this on top of that. It's just to counter China. And that's really about it. There's no strategic goal here other than countering China. And that in and of itself doesn't come with any implicit strategic gain. What does countering China gain for the United States? Other than, you know, you score brownie points with the anti-China lobby at home. and The China last conservatives who will talk all day and night about how we need to have an effective deterrence against China. But what does this do for us? It doesn't do anything for us. Uh, and I'll go back to the food insecurity issue. If we're not going to use our food to aid them in dealing with food insecurity, and if we're not going to sell them that food, if we're just going to give it out, well, we're not really working in our own interests here. We're working in their interests. And you can have mutually beneficial deals. They need the food. 
and our farmers would enjoy the employment and some job security in that we, you know, we're supplying this country with food so you can produce as much as you like and just sell the rest, you know? We can have mutual, mutually beneficial deals like that, but will we? And I'm not entirely sure if we will. But that's our new Africa policy, and we'll see how that pans out. But now, now we're going to talk about Kherson. Is it happening or no? And I'm not, I'm not being uh, an ass when I say this, but is it happening or is it not? Because over the past few weeks, we've been, we've been hearing a lot of talk. There's been much talk and speculation about the Ukrainians preparing a, a massive, a major counteroffensive aimed at the Kherson region. And this is in the area directly northwest of Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. So, there's been a lot of talk about this offensive and how it's going to happen. And there was a lot of talk about it happening in August. And we are now officially halfway through August. And uh, it's a bit weird. I mean, in one of my recent episodes, I even said that this offensive was... If it was really happening, then it could be Ukraine's last stand. And I didn't mean they'd win. I meant that it would literally be the last meaningful resistance that they'd be able to mount against Russia. But once they exhausted their reserves, which they had been gathering for this offensive, Ukraine would no longer be able to plug the holes in their front line, which would very quickly result in a collapse of said front line, and they would lose the war. But that was if this counteroffensive was real. And I, I had my skepticisms. But we're starting to get reporting on not the preparations for this offensive or, or even the, the last, uh, you know, the, the final preparations, the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's and, the, you know, the, we're, we're, getting every, we're getting everything exactly where we want it to be so that we can make sure this is as effective and as potent as possible because this is, this is it. Either we take back our country with this one or it's just a wrap. We're not, we're not getting that. Instead, we're getting reporting on the, uh, the absence of the Kherson offensive. The absence. And again, while I had, while I had my doubts as to what the effectiveness of this theoretical campaign would be, my doubts of its existence were not nearly as high as I, I thought it was still within the cards for Ukraine to pull off. Even if I didn't think it would change the strategic calculus, I still believe that, yeah, they can mount a counteroffensive. They might even be able to push the Russians back a little bit in places where the Russians aren't as dug in if they choose the right locations. They can deal some serious damage. I thought it was plausible, just that they would still lose in the end. But now, now, even outlets, news outlets, which have been really cheerleading the Ukrainian war effort for the past few months, they have begun to question if this offensive is real or not. And when I first talked about the Kherson offensive on the podcast, I did bring up the possibility that it could just be a ploy, you know, to get Russia to focus its attention in one place while Ukraine was actually going to attack in a different place. And the only reason I brought it up was because I thought it was strange. Again, one, I thought it was plausible that they could do a counterattack. And two, I thought it was really strange to broadcast to the whole world, one, that you're going to conduct an offensive in the first place, and two, where the offensive is going to be. I thought that was really suspicious that they would do that. And in my mind, it just wouldn't make sense unless this was a diversionary tactic. Because if it's a diversionary tactic, then it makes plenty of sense. And is actually be it actually becomes very smart. If you say, hey, we're going to attack right here. We're going to go here. You get all the press involved. You, you get everyone looking over here. Oh, what's going on here? There's 
uh, there's no supplies yet, but uh, they could just be really good at hiding it. And then boom, you attack in a completely different area. No one's expect where no one's expecting you to be, and you can get some gains. I thought that was possible. Again, because it wouldn't make sense to broadcast what you're going to do and where you're going to do it when you're at war. It just wouldn't make sense to do that unless you weren't actually going to do it in that place and at that time. So I brought up the possibility it could be a diversion. And it may very well still be. But I guess uh, now that we're all sort of waiting on this to happen and waiting to see if it's going to happen at all it would if it is a diversion it's probably appropriate now to ask a diversion from what and what is going to be gained from doing this uh this diversion again perhaps there's going to be a different offensive in a different region and maybe even at a different time just in surprise Maybe in the Donbass, where the slow and steady Russian steamroller offensive is taking place. And this is where, and this is a, as a side note, this is where a good deal of that whole grinding them down with artillery business I've been talking about has been taking place. And given the serious damage that Russia's artillery has caused here in the Donbass, and the symbolic importance of the Donbass, considering this is where the war began... Uh, I've been, uh, I think that an offensive here may serve multiple purposes. One, to relieve some pressure off of the frontline units, which are just getting hammered away by these artillery blasts and barrages, these endless barrages. Uh, as well as refusing to cede that symbolic victory to the Russians, which is, which would be the liberation, the total liberation of the Donbass Republics, or liberation as they would put it. Or that's that's the way they would frame it, that's the way the Donbass Republics would frame it, and it would give them a s symbolic victory that the Ukrainians don't want them to have. So you could, and you could have legitimate reasons to go there, again, to relieve the troops. If you're doing an offensive over there, and you're concentrating your firepower and your troops over there, well, it'll make fighting back easier, and you you can spare some of your frontline troops and let them rest and recover. You can rotate them off the line, get them back into fighting shape. So there would be real tactical advantages to a, doing a counterattack where Russia is attacking them the hardest, which is in the Donbass. So maybe that's what they're going to do. And, but that's just one example of how things could play out if the Kherson offensive was a diversion after all. But... We ultimately don't know. We'll, we'll probably find out eventually. But we don't know if it was a diversion or not. Or what it could be a diversion from. Especially if the diversion isn't away from some other offensive. Because if, it, if it's not an offensive, that would make it harder to, for us to see what it was a diversion from. Again, if it's a diversion at all. But we don't know. We'll find out soon enough. The, the war has to end and there'll be plenty of post-war coverage about it but I uh, well, this is one of those things we just gotta wait and see but if there's no offensive and no physical gains at all uh, and I'm I'm talking anywhere along the multiple hundred miles of front line between Ukraine and Russia not just in Kherson they they don't just have to be in Kherson they could do it anywhere else and take some land but if nothing will have been gained from this, this what's currently amounting to a military-grade publicity stunt, then uh, what's, what was the purpose? That will be one hell of a question left in the minds of people, especially the, the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian people, and a lot of the supporters of Ukraine over here in Europe and America. What was the point? But today is Monday, and we have a whole week, plus there's still a couple months left in the campaigning season before winter sets in. So we shall see. But for the time being, it's looking like the Kherson Offensive 
was little more than Ukrainian propaganda. We shall see. But now we're going to get to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. So let's get into this. Last week, the FBI raided Donald Trump's Florida home, Mar-a-Lago, uh, home slash resort. And the raid was carried out by around 39 agents and lasted for about an hour. These agents went in looking for certain documents they suspected were in Trump's possession, documents likely related to the January 6th riot, as well as other classified material that we are currently not privy to but might, in their view, be sensitive information. They cracked one of Trump's personal safes, uh, they broke the lock on it, which... Ironically enough, they had asked him to install on this, that very safe. Uh, this is prior to the raid, and they asked him to do this to keep the documents safe. The documents that they already knew he had in the safe. Um, but uh, the results of all this is, well, nothing. It's nothing. They came up empty and gained no new information about what Trump had that he hadn't already told them when he was complying with their investigation. At least that's from what we know now. Uh, instead, uh, a whole lot was found out about the people doing the searching. Uh, and this is, uh, I guess I'll say what I'm about to say for later, uh, but, but we found out a whole lot about the people doing the searching instead of what Trump had. Because, for instance, the judge responsible for giving out the warrant uh, for the raid has been revealed to be connected to Jeffrey Epstein, the notorious, highly connected, and now deceased sex trafficking pedophile. Now that's definitely something I wouldn't imagine I would have said two weeks ago about one of these judges, uh, but here we are where... Uh, Epstein connected judge is the one responsible for giving out the warrant. Uh, it's casted a lot of attention on the politicization and weaponization of the FBI, and said politicization and weaponization has now made its way into the mainstream political discourse, with some even calling for the FBI's abolition now. There are uh, there's motions that have already been put in to unseal the warrant which was used and to lay bare the evidence which was presented to justify this warrant and some of the affidavits that were given by FBI agents and who in the FBI gave the evidence. Uh, a whole lot of scrutiny, a whole lot of unwanted scrutiny, I would guess. Uh, I'm not an FBI agent, but I would assume that this is sort of the opposite level of attention that you would want for an agency like yourself if you're in the FBI. Uh, and again, all this seems to have drawn a lot of unwanted attention to the FBI and the people running it. Uh, so much so that I am now of the belief that the FBI has effectively just abolished itself. I mean, it, not only did Donald Trump get to break the story first, you know, which some speculate me implies that he knew it was going to happen before it actually happened, because he had a really long and thoroughly elaborated um, post that he put on his social media, Truth Social, uh, within hours of the raid happening. And then he had a, a campaign ad type video, which couldn't have been put together in the matter of hours or maybe he just had something re really really talented at at the ready uh so things like that that require time and attention and you know information imply that he knew this was going to happen beforehand but i myself cannot quite confirm that but it is believable especially when you see a lot of what was said and you see the video and the level of detail in and editing in the video. Editing takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. So the fact that these were released so quickly after the raid implies that they were prepared. So 
not only did he break the story, because uh, he was the, the first one to bring it up that this was happening, before the news, before anyone on the alternative media space, he broke the story. So he got to set the narrative for how this story was portrayed. And it's looking like his narrative is stuck. It's looking like his narrative is stuck, that narrative being the deep state, the administrative state, the the swamp, the Washington elite, whatever you want to call them, they are overreaching their power. They're openly weaponizing our institutions against citizens of the United States, starting with a former president. And the the tagline there being that if they can do it to Trump, they can do it to you just as easily, if not easier. And that's the narrative he set when he broke the story again. Uh, so quickly that it implies he may have knew this was going to happen earlier. And I'll just leave that on the table. It is pretty suspicious how he knew this was going to happen. Or how he was able to respond so quickly to it. Uh, but he did this. And straight up opponents of Donald Trump have even condemned the raid. Again, it's looking like his narrative is sticking to this raid. Uh, when opponents of Donald Trump are condemning it. People like Andrew Cuomo, former governor of New York, and Michael D'Antonio, Michael D'Antonio, a CNN contributor and the author of The Truth About Donald Trump. These are people who do not like Trump. And they're condemning the raid not because they think it was a bad thing to do to Trump, but because they think it's going to backfire and create a lot of problems for the FBI and for the the administrative state and the bureaucracy. They that's their view on this. This is this is going to work against the bureaucracy and the the permanent political class. Instead of we shouldn't have done it to Trump, it's this was an overreach that's going to backfire on us. So they had the right stance, but for the wrong reasons. And that further seems to it further seems to demonstrate that Trump's narrative regarding this has stuck. Because Michael D'Antonio, in specific, brought up that the FBI raid has given Trump his campaign message. Uh, the administrative state needs to be reined in. And they, they're overreaching in their power. You've even seen polls coming out recently in the wake of this raid showing Americans overwhelmingly believing that there's two tiers of governance. And now I don't dabble too much in polls here. I have a hard time trusting a lot of them. But I guess I'll just use this one for anecdotal evidence. But it was uh, about 70% of Americans who believe that there are two tiers of justice. One for regular people. And then one for the well-connected in in government. So this raid has cast light on that. Again, lots of unwanted attention for people in this arena who would prefer to be in the shadows get and reap the benefits of having all this power and control. So people who do not like Trump are able to see that it's helped him and that it has even managed to unify the Republican voter base behind Trump and because uh, before it was oh do we really want Trump or maybe we want DeSantis oh DeSantis oh my goodness DeSantis oh let me, oh my god DeSantis so there was a whole lot of that going on before and now that the FBI has raided Trump's home it's Trump just Trump now I'm of the opinion that it's going to be Trump and DeSantis together and well that's going to be quite the dream ticket for the Republicans uh, a dream ticket for myself as well, but yeah, the, the, if there was any question who the Republican nominee is now, before, uh, the answer has, well, that question has already been answered. It's Trump. It's Trump now. So this is working to his benefit. He's raised millions already off the raid, and this raid has given him the perfect optics to attack the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., starting with none other than the FBI. Now, I made clear uh, a couple months back my belief that they ought to be abolished, the FBI, 
Uh, and this was in the aftermath of the shooting that occurred in Buffalo, New York. Yet another shooting where the FBI knew what was happening. They knew who was involved and they had everything they needed to step in and keep people safe and chose not to do so. And if you're going to be that derelict in your duty, you don't need that power. As a matter of fact, your institution doesn't need to exist. And I, I made that that was my stance back when that happened. And I'll even go back as far as 9-11. Uh, they knew everything that they needed to prevent that from happening on plenty of probable cause. Plenty of probable cause. No. And they did nothing. And 3,000 people died because of it. Unnecessarily. Uh, New York City could have flooded if, if the plan, if what they were intending, the terrorists actually went through and the water came in from beneath, uh, you know, the basement. There's lots of, there was a wall and the rubble almost broke through the wall, which would enable the water because New York is uh, really, uh, if you, if you aren't aware, it's right next to a whole lot of water. And so in the basement of the Twin Towers, there if the water came in, they could have flooded a good portion of the city from this, the towers coming down. So the FBI had everything they needed to stop this, and they didn't. And they do this multiple, multiple times. It's hard to count. But once you notice it, you can't unnotice that they, they always know about these things. And you can even look at the Parkland shooting, where the FBI knew about that kid. They knew about him and he was how he was dangerous. And they do not. They, they know about these things and they do nothing. And I made the case a month, couple months back that they're derelict in their duty. They don't need to exist. If they're not going to do their job, if they're not going to do anything useful for our Americans, then get rid of them. So I made the case that they should have been abolished way back then. But now, now, it seems that my dreams of ridding this great nation of the security state and the bureaucracy may actually come true. And it was all thanks to the bureaucracy itself. Ah, you love to see it. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, the world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.